Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 55, To Be or Not To Be. In this episode, we're going to continue our look at Old English grammar. Specifically, we're going to focus on certain verb forms which survived into the modern English period and which can be found in the works of Shakespeare and the King James Bible. These are forms like thou art and he doth. So this discussion will sort of piggyback our last episode in which we explored Old English pronoun forms which survived until the time of Shakespeare. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com and you can always reach me directly at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. And also, let me thank those of you who've been kind enough to make a donation to the podcast at the website. I always appreciate the support, and I sincerely thank those of you who've made contributions. So let's turn to this episode, and the history of English verbs. Let me begin by noting that there were several aspects of verbs which I wanted to cover in this episode. But after preparing the episode, I realized that it was going to be over an hour in length. And some of the detail in this episode is a bit technical, so I was afraid it was a bit too much for one episode. As it turned out, the material divided very neatly into two parts, so I've decided to present it as two episodes. This episode will focus on some Old English verb forms which have died out, but which are still familiar to modern English speakers. And I'm also going to explore the complicated history of the verb to be, which is the reason for the title. We'll also look at the history of our word not and how it makes verbs negative. The next episode will focus on the historical distinction between strong verbs and weak verbs and why those forms are so muddled in modern English. The one thing that all of these grammar episodes have in common, besides grammar, is the fact that they all involve some aspect of Viking influence. And that's why I'm presenting them here in the overall story of English. So, after this two-part look at verbs, we'll pick back up with the historical narrative and continue on with the history of English, and we'll set the stage for the upcoming Norman Conquest. So, given the title of this episode, let's begin with a few lines from Shakespeare. Like feeble age, he reeleth from the day. And here's another. The lady doth protest too much. And this one. He hath a wisdom that doth guide his valor. Note the verb forms. He reeleth, not he reels. The lady doth, not the lady does. He hath, not he has. And that doth instead of that does. How about a line from the King James Bible? Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. So, suffereth, envieth, vaunteth. When we hear that TH ending, we instantly associate it with an older form of English. But as we know, realeth became reals, and hath became has, and envieth became envies. So, why did that change occur? Well, it was most likely because of the Vikings. Many modern linguists think that S ending ultimately came from Old Norse. 
In order to explore this little bit of English history, let's begin by looking at the modern present tense verb forms. In modern English, when we think of the present tense verbs, a clear pattern exists. Take the word jump. I jump, you jump, he, she, it jumps, we jump, you all jump, and they jump. In every case but one, the verb form is the same, jump. This is a good illustration of how modern English has gotten rid of Old English inflectional endings, and it relies upon fixed word forms. But there's that one exception, jumps. He, she, it jumps. That third-person singular form uses that S on the end. But if we were to go back to Old English, we would find that things were a lot more complicated. So let's go back to the Anglo-Saxons and consider a verb like deem, as in to deem something to be good or bad. It's an Old English verb, and in first-person singular, the verb took an a ending. So I deem was each dema. The second person singular ending was est. So you deem was thu demest. The third person singular ending was eth. That's the original version of the ending I quoted earlier. So he deems was he demeth. All of the plural forms also took that eth ending. So we deem, you all deem, and they deem were all demeth. Now, obviously, those Old English forms sound familiar to us today. Some of those Old English forms survived all the way into early modern English. In fact, both the second person, you, and third person, he, she, it forms survived. Let's begin with the second person, you form. As we saw in the last episode, English once distinguished singular thou and plural you. But that plural you form was gradually applied to individuals. By the time of Shakespeare, it could be used both ways. And when Shakespeare referred to an individual, he used both forms, thou and you. By that point, the plural verb forms no longer required an ending. So that TH ending, which existed in Old English, had been dropped for plural forms like we and you all and they. So it was just we deem and you deem, as in you all deem, and they deem. And even when you was used to refer to a single person, it still took that same form. So it was you deem, even when addressing one person. But what about that traditional single pronoun, thou? Well, thou was the old pronoun form inherited from the Anglo-Saxons. So when you used thou, you had to use that older verb form as well. And as we just saw in Old English, that ending was est. So it was thu demest. And throughout Middle English, whenever you used thou, you had to give the verb an st ending. So, you deem, but thou deemest. You do, but thou dost. You have, was thou hast. Again, that st ending was the second person singular ending, so it was almost always used with thou. As we look through the writings of Shakespeare, we find that he used thou seest instead of you see, thou dost instead of you do, Thou mightest instead of you might, 
and sometimes the ending was just shortened to a T sound. So we find thou shalt instead of you shall. But it was the same basic construction. And that very distinctive ending was inherited directly from Old English. As we know, that specific ST or T ending died out shortly after Shakespeare. And in fact, since it was usually used with thou, they both died out together. In fact, I didn't mention it last time, but this actually has been offered as an additional theory for why the plural form you ultimately replaced the older singular form thou. By the time of Shakespeare, you no longer required a verb ending, but thou still required that st ending on the verb. So at a time when English was dropping those inflectional endings, the you form was preferred because when you used you, you didn't have to put an ending on the verb. The other theory which I presented last time was that you was preferred because it was socially neutral and it allowed speakers to avoid making social distinctions. But these two theories are not mutually exclusive. They don't contradict each other. In fact, they actually reinforce each other. You was socially neutral and it was also easier to use because it didn't require any specific verb endings. So a phrase like thou seest was gradually replaced by you see. So that's the second person form. But what about the third person form? Well, again, Shakespeare and early modern English initially retained that Old English form. As we saw, the Old English conjugation of he deems was he dameth. So a th ending was required. So he has was he hath. And she shows was she showeth. We get a good example of this third-person form in the first few lines of Psalm 23 from the King James Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So we can hear that older verb form at work. This was the standard third-person ending going back to the Anglo-Saxons. But there was another verb ending as well, the one which we use today, that S ending. It had once been common in the north of England, and by the time of Shakespeare, it had spread southward and mixed in with that older TH ending. So instead of he maketh, it was he makes. And instead of he leadeth, it was he leads. And instead of he restoreth, it was he restores. In fact, Shakespeare used both forms. In fact, he sometimes used them interchangeably. Occasionally, the two forms even appear in the same line. For example, in Macbeth, Shakespeare writes, The earth hath bubbles as the water has. Hath is the older form ending in th. Has is the newer form ending in s. And Shakespeare had no problem using both of them together. In The Merchant of Venice, he writes, It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. So he uses blesseth right beside gives and takes. Again, he mixes those third-person endings in the same line. Though he often used both forms, there's no doubt that the older TH form was dying out by the time he wrote his poems and plays in the early 1600s. 
So where did that S ending come from? Well, as I noted earlier, many modern linguists think that it actually came from the Vikings. The location and timing suggest a Viking origin. This ending appeared in the north of England around the 900s. So this is when most of the other Norse influences came in. But in the Old Norse language of the Vikings, the third-person verb form ended in an R sound, not an S sound. So that verb deem, which we saw earlier, was domir in Old Norse. One theory is that linguistic confusion caused the Anglo-Saxons to shift the sound at the end from an R sound to an S sound. So this argument suggests that doemir became doemis, and this common pronunciation eventually became a standard verb ending. The British linguist and historian David Crystal suggests a slightly different theory. In his book, The Story of English, he notes that Old Norse sometimes had what's called a middle voice in second and third persons. This caused verbs to end in an SK sound in those situations. And Crystal argues that the Anglo-Saxons might have borrowed that SK ending and shortened it to simply an S sound. Whatever the exact circumstances were, this S ending entered Northern English in the 900s, maybe even a little earlier. There's evidence of this change from around the year 970 in the Northern English translation of the Lindisfarne Gospels. The Old English word onsatcha meant to exact something or deprive someone of something. But in this northern translation of the original Latin Gospels, it's rendered as he onsatches. And this is one of the first instances of that third-person S ending in English. By the time of the early Middle English period, the use of that S ending was very common in the north of England. But its use was really limited to the north. So there was a general north-south divide. The north would say sings using the S form, and the south would say singeth using the Old English TH form. But as so often happened, that northern innovation spread southward. By the time of Shakespeare, that S ending was well entrenched in the south as well. The two endings were somewhat interchangeable, and that's why Shakespeare could use both endings in the same line. But shortly after Shakespeare's time, the S form had clearly emerged as the dominant form. Writers of the late 1600s noted that the older TH ending was basically just being used by writers and poets. It wasn't really being used in regular speech anymore. The Viking-influenced form had won out over the Anglo-Saxon form. There isn't really a good explanation for why this particular form was so popular and why it gradually replaced the Old English ending. In fact, not only did it beat out the older TH ending, it actually has survived as the only ending which we use in present tense. Today, all of the other verb endings are gone. I sing, you sing, we sing, you all sing, and they sing. But she sings. So for some reason, English speakers still love that Norse-influenced ending. So we continue to see Norse influences in modern English grammar, even though such influences are sometimes subtle. There's actually one other area where we find Viking influence, and that's in our modern verb, to be. So let's turn from our discussion of verbs, and let's focus on one specific verb, to be. In modern English, to be 
is both very complex and very common. When it's conjugated, we get am, is, are, was, were, been, and being. Among those forms, is, was, are, and be are among the 25 most commonly used words in the English language. As far as the complexity of the verb, English is not really unique in this regard. It's also very complex in other Indo-European languages. Modern French, Spanish, and German all have highly variable forms of the verb to be. In English, the infinitive is to be, and been and being are clearly related to be, but where did am, is, are, was, and were come from? The answer is that they came from other verbs. Old English actually had three different verbs which meant to be, or which conveyed some aspect of being or existing. And those verbs could be conjugated for first person, second person, and third person, and for singular and plural. So there were a lot of different variations of each of these three verbs. And over the course of many centuries, those various verb forms have been mixed together. It's actually difficult to trace this history with any precision, because the way in which these verbs mixed together varied from region to region. But there are a few general statements we can make. First, the modern past tense forms, was and were, came from a verb called wesen. Again, it meant to be. But the Anglo-Saxons always used this particular verb for past tense. It didn't really have a present tense form. And in fact, these verb forms have changed very little over the past thousand years. In Old English, I was was each was. You were was thu were. He was was he was. She was was he was. We were was we weren. You all were was ye weren. And they were was he weren. So, other than some slight pronunciation changes, we use those past tense forms pretty much the same way as the Anglo-Saxons. Note here that in modern English, there's a basic distinction between singular and plural uses of this verb. Singular tends to be was, I was, he was, she was, it was, but plural forms use were, we were, you all were, and they were. Again, this is the same way as Old English. The one exception is you when used as a singular pronoun. So, if I'm just talking to you individually, I would say you were, not you was. Well, believe it or not, this wasn't an established construction in English until the 1800s. Prior to then, it was very common for people to say you was when referring to one person, and you were when referring to multiple people. Even Noah Webster insisted that you was was correct in singular usage. But grammarians insisted that you is ultimately a plural pronoun, as we saw in the last episode. And so you should always take the plural verb form, were, even when it's referring to one person. But there was also some authority for this view within Old English. Old English also distinguished the singular you from the other singular forms. They said were for a singular you and was for the other singular persons. 
So ultimately, you were became the standard singular form. Along the way, you was became relegated to non-standard speech. So those are the past tense forms, all borrowed from the verb wesen. But when we turn to the present tense, things get a bit more complicated. Let's begin with the second verb, which meant to be in Old English. And that was the verb bean, which is actually the original version of the word be. It also produced the words been and being. Again, it could be used for all persons. I, you, he, she, we, you all, and they. Respectively, the forms were beo, beast, and beeth. And for all plural forms, it was beeth. Today, the verb survives as the infinitive to be. And it survives in the participles, been and being. We also use them in verb phrases like have been, am being, was being, and so on. But notice that we don't use them in our regular present tense forms. We don't say, or at least we're not supposed to say, I be, or you be, or he be, or they be. However, the verb was once used in those situations. It was quite common for an Anglo-Saxon to say each beo, the equivalent of I be, and thu beast, basically you be. And they would say, hey beeth, or heo beeth, the equivalent of he be, or she be. And they used the form beeth as a generic plural form, so the same as we be, or you all be, or they be. But by the time of Middle English, those be forms were dying out in most of those situations. The only situation where they really hung on was in the plural usages. English speakers were still saying we be, or they be, in the early modern English period. In fact, we can find those uses in the King James Bible. For example, Matthew 15, 14 reads, They be blind leaders of the blind. Some of those uses are still considered standard today. A phrase like the powers that be is an old phrase which preserves that old usage. Note that it's not the powers that are, it's the powers that be. But of course, that be has survived in regional and non-standard dialects. For example, it's a common feature of what's known as African-American vernacular English in the United States. He be or they be is still common there. But again, the Anglo-Saxons sometimes used be in a similar manner, because be was a distinct verb back then which could be conjugated as a regular present tense verb. But as I noted, the use of be in that way largely died out of Standard English, except for the participles been and being, and the infinitive to be. During Middle English, other verb forms, which meant to be, became the standard present tense verb forms that we have today. Today, instead of I be or you be and so on, we say I am, you are, he, she, is, and we, you, or they, are. So we have am, is, and are. These forms also go back to Old English, where they were once used as variations of the Old English verb sinden. Again, this was another verb which meant to be. In actuality, this verb sinden 
was itself a combination of two even older Indo-European verbs. One was es, and the other was er, but they had both become mixed together by the time of Old English. So let's look a little closer at those ultimate roots. The Indo-European root es did most of the heavy lifting. It also meant to be or to exist, and it ultimately gave us the words is and am. It also had a plural version, sind, which was used in Old English. That Indo-European root es also passed into Latin, and it's the basis of many, but not all, of the modern forms of be in French and Spanish. From Latin, it also gave us words like exist, essence, and essential. Within Old English, the Anglo-Saxons used a form of that word, am, in first-person singular. So they would say each am, which was the original version of I am. And they would also use it in third-person singular. They would say heis or heois, which was the original version of he is or she is. In fact, he is was written the exact same way in Old English, H-E-I-S. So, am and is came from this Indo-European root word, ace. And during the period of Middle English, these forms pushed out that other verb form, be. So, both forms could actually be found in Britain during Middle English, depending on where you were. So, you might hear I be, or each beo, in one region, and I am somewhere else. And you might hear he be, or he beeth, in one place, and he is in another. But over time, am and is became standard, and the be form was dropped. So that's first and third person singular. But what about second person singular, the singular you, what the Anglo-Saxons called thou, and what Middle English called thou? For this case, the Anglo-Saxons used that other Indo-European root word, Air. They would say thou art, which later became thou art. Of course, thou art was a very popular construction in Shakespeare's writings and the King James Bible. Again, this form pushed out you be or thou beast as a construction, but it didn't survive beyond the early modern English period. Thou art soon gave way to you are. So when it comes to our modern singular forms, am, is, and are, we use them today in much the same way that they were used in Old English and Middle English. They had rivals in I be and you be and he or she be, but those bees were pushed out. So what about the plural forms? Well, this is where things have changed. And once again, this is where the Vikings played a role. Again, as I've noted, Old English and Middle English sometimes use the be form here. So you could find we be, or you all be, or they be. Actually, the Anglo-Saxons used beth, which was a variation of be, but it had become just be during Middle English. And as I noted earlier, this form even survived into early modern English in a phrase like the powers that be. Early English also used that other verb form, which gave us words like am and is. The plural version of that verb was sinden, 
And if you've studied German, that form will look very familiar because it's cognate with the form used in German. So the Anglo-Saxons would sometimes say we singen for we are and je singen for you are and he singen for they are. Again, that word singen came from that Indo-European root word ace, which gave us am and is. But that word singen began to die out in early Middle English. And that word singen had a new rival in the north. And that rival came from the Vikings. In the Old Norse language of the Vikings, the plural forms were erum, eruth, and eru. They were all derived from that other Indo-European root word, er, which gave us the second person singular, art, as in thou art. These Norse plural forms entered Northern English, and they all collapsed into a single plural form, pronounced as arn or arn. We can actually date this entry based upon the surviving text. Around the year 970, the Lindisfarne Gospels were translated from Latin into Old English in the north of England. And the translator used the form arun for the English form sund. Within a couple of centuries, that verb form arun had spread throughout the north of England. But the south still held on to that older form sinden. So, in early Middle English, if you wanted to say, we are, you might say, we singen in the south, and we aren in the north. And for, you all are, you might say, ye singen in the south, and ye aren in the north. But as I noted, that word singen slowly died out as aren spread around the island. By the 1300s, singen was pretty much gone, and Aren evolved into our modern plural form, R. So by the time of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, English had the singular form, thou art, and the plural form, you are. Both art and are were derived from the same Indo-European and Germanic root word. But are was really the Viking form, and art was the Anglo-Saxon form. As thou died out of English, art disappeared with it. The two were fundamentally linked together. So as thou art disappeared, the plural form, you are, took over. And today, you are survives as both the singular and the plural forms. And again, that are form can be traced back to the Vikings. And remember from the last episode that the word they also comes from the Vikings. So whenever we say they are, that's entirely from Old Norse. Again, the B form hung on as a rival for a while. So they are and they be could both be used, but are is the only standard form today. So that's how we got our very irregular verb to be. Now, before I conclude this episode, I wanted to briefly discuss another very irregular verb in modern English, the verb to go. Notice that we say go, gone, going, but the past tense form is went. And the reason why the verb to go does that is for the same reason that the verb to be also changes its form so much. The various forms of to go are actually derived from two different older verbs. The infinitive to go 
is derived from the Old English word gone, which meant to go. In an earlier episode, I noted that a spider was sometimes called a gongawaver, a going weaver. So we've seen gone before. So go, gone, and going are all derived from that Old English word. But in Old English, the past tense form was aorta. This was derived from a completely different Indo-European word, which meant to go. And that old form actually lasted into Middle English. In fact, Chaucer used a slightly later version of that word, yeda. But during the 1400s, that Old English word got a new rival, the verb winden. Winden also meant to go. It's cognate with and very closely related to wander and wind, as in the long and winding road. Its original form still exists in the expression to wend one's way. Well, this verb had a past tense form, which was went. So just as we have send and sent, we also had wend and went. And during the Middle English period, this word went became the standard word to use to describe someone going or traveling in the past. And it gradually replaced aoda. And went soon emerged as the standard past tense form of to go. Of course, English also has the word gone, which is derived from go. But gone has been restricted to use as a past participle, as in he has gone or they have gone. The main point here is that highly irregular verbs like to be and to go result from the combination of two or more separate verbs at some point in the distant past. So I've talked about to go and to be, and given the title of this episode, I guess I should talk about not to be. In other words, I should discuss the word not, and the most common way to make verbs negative in modern English. Not is a very important word in English. It allows us to turn our verbs negative, to make them mean the opposite of their normal meaning. And we do that today by putting the word not after the verb, or at least after the initial verb in a verb phrase. So, I am not, I cannot, I do not. But Old English had the word nay. And nay wasn't exactly not, although there is a link which we'll see in a moment. The word nay was the standard negative adverb in Old English, but it preceded the verb. So instead of I do not, it was I nay did, literally each nay duda. Nay came first. And when the nay was followed by a verb which began with a vowel, the nay blended with that vowel, and the result was an N sound at the beginning of the verb. And that actually happened with the verb to be. In Middle English, am not was nay am, and it was sometimes slurred together and rendered simply as nam, n-a-m. So I nam meant I am not. And is not was nay is, and it was sometimes slurred together and rendered as nis, n-i-s. So he nis meant he is not. So that word nay at the beginning often produced negative versions of words with an N sound at the beginning. And that's why so many of our modern negative terms begin with an N. 
never was originally ne avra, literally not ever. But the two distinct words slurred together and produced never. None was originally ne on, literally not one. Again, Neon slurred into non and then became none. That earlier form, non, combined with the word thing and produced non thing or nothing today. But if we break it down, it's literally not one thing. So never, none, and nothing all begin with an N thanks to that old English negative adverb, ne, which was usually placed first and often slurred into the word which followed it. So non-thing was nothing, but the Anglo-Saxons had an emphatic way of saying nothing. It was neowit, which literally meant not ever anything. Initially, it just meant an emphatic nothing, but it later evolved into our modern word not, N-A-U-G-H-T, which still means nothing. But a slight variation of that word in early Middle English produced the word not, N-O-T. So as you might have guessed, not and not come from the same Old English root. So our modern word not appeared in early Middle English, still having a sense of nothing. And it might have remained indistinct from not had it not been for the Normans. The Normans arrived in 1066, and they brought their French language with them. And French made verbs negative with two words, ne and another element, usually pa. And those words bookended the verb. Ne came before the verb, and pa came after it. So in French, I know is je sais, but I do not know is je ne sais pas. Well, in early Middle English, this French idea of bookending verbs in this manner actually spread into English. In fact, that French ne in ne pas and that English ne were not only spelled the same way, ne, they were actually cognate. They both came from the original Indo-European language, and that's why they behaved so similarly in French and English. Both languages used that word before the verb to make the verb negative. But French put an element after the verb as well usually pa. So, English speakers started doing the same thing, except instead of pa, they used not. So, based on the French model, ne went before the verb, just as it always had, and not was now added after the verb, just like pa in French. So, I did could be made negative with the expression I ne did not. So, that word not took its place after the verb, where it still exists today. Of course, over time, as the French influence declined, this system broke down. At times, it was common to just use either ne before the verb or not after the verb. You didn't always have to use both. But with the decline of French, ne eventually disappeared from English altogether. And that left not behind the verb. So, we went from the Old English, I nay did, to I nay did not, to I did not. And this nay not construction could be used with any verb in Middle English. So, heat nay swelleth not was literally it not swells not, 
but it meant it swells not. This type of speech was very common in Middle English, and it spread into early modern English. And once again, we recognize those constructions from Shakespeare and the King James Bible. The opening lines of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice are, In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. So, I know not. A few lines later, he writes, But fish not with this melancholy bait. So, fish not. In Henry VIII, he writes, Corruption wins not more than honesty. Followed a couple lines later with, Be just and fear not. Of course, fear not features prominently in the King James Bible as well. But this construction, which we associate with these older writings, ultimately came from the French idea of na pas, which became ne not in English. But by the 1500s and 1600s, that older construction of fear not and know not began to die out, thanks to a new construction using the word do. Those older phrases were gradually replaced with phrases like do not fear and do not have and do not know. Notice that not still takes its place behind the initial verb, do. And in other verb phrases, it also follows the initial verb. So, am not going, is not here, will not listen, and so on. Way back in the episode about the Celtic influences on English, I discussed John McWhorter's theories that the way English uses do today in this manner was a borrowing from the Celtic languages. And I'm not going to rehash that argument here. I just want to note that do entered English grammar and it largely broke down that old Middle English construction. Today, we don't really stick not behind any random verb. Instead, its use has been largely limited to a position after the initial word in a verb phrase. So typically after words like do, can, will, shall, am, is, are, have, has, and so on. So, we have it in phrases like, I do not see, I cannot go, I have not been, I am not there. But we don't tend to say things like, go not, or speak not, or run not in the house. But we might use those types of phrases if we want to speak in an old-fashioned way. So, in that context, we might say, fear not, or worry not. But otherwise, the use of not, or at least its position in the sentence, has become much more limited over time. Now, in the examples I just gave, like I do not, or I cannot, or I have not, notice what tends to happen to the sound at the end. In most of those cases, the constructions are so common that English speakers have often slurred that not ending into a contraction at the end. So, do not became don't, and cannot became can't, and have not became haven't, and so on. All of these contractions were in place by the 1600s, by the time of Shakespeare. Notice that this is the same thing that happened when that Old English negative form, nay, appeared before certain words. Nay ever slurred into never, and nay on slurred into none. So, it doesn't matter where English puts these negative words. We always tend to slur them. And we also slur them when they follow the verb to be. 
is not became isn't, and was not became wasn't, and were not became weren't, and are not became aren't. But what about am not, as in I am not? We don't have amit. But there was once a contraction for that phrase, which evolved around the same time as all of those other contractions. And I bet you know what it is. It was the notorious ain't. Am not evolved into ant and then to ain't. And this was actually a common expression for a couple of centuries, from around the time of Shakespeare through the 1700s. But by the 1800s, the use of ain't had extended to is not and are not as well. So it was common to hear someone say, you ain't, and he ain't, and we ain't. But originally, it was only used as a shortened version of the first person, am not. The major culprit here appears to be Cockney English in London. The expanded use of ain't was very prevalent in that dialect, and if you've ever read Charles Dickens, you'll know that he used it a lot in the voices of his characters. And it was that expanding ain't that created the problem for grammarians. During the 1800s, when the use of ain't was expanding to these other uses, grammarians began to fight back. Apparently, it had been acceptable to say, I ain't, since ain't was really just a contraction of am not. But now, in the 1800s, people were using it the wrong way. They were saying, he ain't, and she ain't, and they ain't. Crazy stuff like that. So, grammarians began a full frontal assault on ain't. And in the process, the word became stigmatized. So stigmatized, in fact, that standard English dropped it altogether. Even the once acceptable, I ain't, became unacceptable. And that's why English doesn't have a negative contraction of am not anymore. English once had it, but it ain't there anymore. Of course, some English speakers have tried to compensate for the loss of ain't by adopting aren't, since it sounds kind of similar. And so you might hear a phrase like, I'm right, aren't I? Even though we hear it in common speech, English majors tell us that it's improper because are is a plural form. So the more appropriate construction should be, I'm right, am I not? The bottom line is that they're not going to let us have our am not contraction back. It's gone, and it ain't coming back. Now, I noted earlier that English adopted the French model of ne pas and created ne not. And the ne part was eventually dropped from the front of that combination. Well, the same thing sometimes happens in modern colloquial French. It's common for some French speakers to drop the ne part in ne pas. So instead of saying, je ne sais pas, they would say, je sais pas. And to the extent that that's happening in French, it sort of mirrors what happened several centuries ago in English. But American linguist Mark Lieberman has taken this development and applied it to modern American English. He's argued that when there are two negative features in a sentence, the second one can become intensified to the point where the first one becomes unnecessary. We don't really need that first feature anymore because the second feature does all of the work. So, ne pas isn't really necessary because the pas part is sufficient to convey negativity. 
and I'm not doing his entire argument justice here, but you get the idea. But the most compelling part of Lieberman's argument is that he applies it to the phrase, I could not care less. Of course, it literally means that I cannot care any less than I do right now. I've reached rock bottom on the care scale. But it's become quite common in American English for people to say, I could care less. And it drives English speakers in other parts of the world crazy. And maybe that's why Americans continue to say it. But it drives a lot of Americans crazy, too. I could care less means you actually care, at least a little bit, because you could care less than you do right now. So where did this construction come from? Well, the exact origins are unknown. Both phrases are very modern. The first recorded instance of I could not care less was in the Chicago Tribune in 1944. And the first recorded instance of I could care less was just 11 years later in the Washington Post. So why did that later version, I could care less, thrive in American English? Lieberman argues that it was the same basic process that sometimes results in the loss of ne in ne pas in French. In the sentence, I could not care less, there are two words which convey negativity, not and less, and they bookend the verb care. So they work kind of like ne pas in French, or the way ne not once worked in English. And within American English, the second word, less, is a strong enough intensifier that it renders the initial not redundant and unnecessary. So, I could not care less becomes I could care less. They express the same meaning. The same way that je ne sais pas becomes just je sais pas. And the same way I ne did not just became I did not. To the average speaker and listener, both versions mean the same thing because the second negative word does all the work and it expresses all of the required negativity. Now, I should note that there are other theories about I could care less, including that it was originally a sarcastic statement based on the original. But I can't provide any definitive answers here, so the overall debate about that phrase will certainly rage on. Now, having discussed the possible redundancy of negative features in a sentence, I have to address the large elephant in the room. Those dreaded double negatives. Now, ne pas or ne not are not really double negatives. Those two features complement and reinforce each other. A double negative occurs when the two negative features contradict each other. They appear in many ways. I didn't get nothing. I do not disagree. Popular music is a common culprit. The Rolling Stones gave us, I can't get no satisfaction. Pink Floyd gave us, we don't need no education. And Tom Jones gave us, it's not unusual. If English was governed by strict logic, those negative terms would cancel each other out. It's not unusual should be, it's usual. But the song wouldn't quite sound the same. And we need education sort of defeats the meaning of Roger Waters' lyric. And who knew? I can't get no satisfaction actually means Mick Jagger was quite satisfied. Thank you very much. But even though we're told these are improper sentences, the fact is that English has always used double negatives. They were once very common in the language, 
and they were perfectly acceptable. They appear in Beowulf and in the works of Geoffrey Chaucer. Old English sometimes used triple and quadruple negatives within the same sentence. Even Shakespeare used them. In As You Like It, he wrote, I cannot go no further. The idea that double negatives were bad was really a product of the Renaissance and the rise of logic and mathematical equations. In 1762, Robert Louth wrote his Short Introduction to English Grammar. It was a very important text in the formulation of English grammar rules. And he asserted that double negatives cancel each other, just as in a mathematical equation. So he said they should be avoided. Now, you can't really argue with his logic. The only problem is that language is not always logical. As we just saw with I could care less. What people say and what people mean are not always the same thing. When we use more than one negative term in a sentence, we're often trying to emphasize the negativity. I can't get no satisfaction is just more emphatic than I can't get satisfaction. And really, I could not care less is sort of the same idea. We could just say I do not care, but we want to emphasize how much we don't care. So we could not care less. We're just creating emphasis. Of course, that sentence is logical. The problem is that some of them are not logical. Appropriately enough, we don't need no education does in fact mean that you need some education. So those double negatives have been stigmatized and pushed to the side in modern English. Logic has tried to overtake emotion. But emotion is tough to overcome. And those emotional English speakers keep fighting back. And those double negatives remain a common feature of modern English. And with that, I don't have nothing else to say. Which really means I have a lot more to say. So next time, I'll say it. In the next episode, we'll continue our look at verbs. Specifically, we'll look at the traditional distinction between so-called strong verbs and weak verbs. This is a very Germanic distinction which still exist in the language. But it's created a lot of confusion over the centuries. So next time, we'll try to sort out some of that history. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast.